and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 16th of June with me, Ian Welsh. At the recent Innovation Forum Future of Food events in Amsterdam and Minneapolis, a recurring theme in the conversation and debate was how to ensure long-term food supply resilience and what's necessary to achieve this. A few days ago, I spoke with Ricky Kylens-Gierna, Senior Vice President, Food Chains at Norway-based fertiliser company Yara International, about food sector resilience and the role of different value chain actors in achieving this. That's coming up. First, though, it's time for a quick roundup of some sustainable business news. While net zero remains one of the latest buzz phrases, how much actual progress has been made and are the necessary parties making the commitments required? A new report from Net Zero Tracker, a collaboration of environmental organisations and research institutions, has found that too many companies, cities, regions and states have not set the targets that are required if the commitments made by national governments amid much fanfare at the COP26 meetings in Glasgow in 2021 are to be met. Net Zero Tracker says that many subnational governments and 40% of large companies lack net zero targets. And of the subnational governments, regions and companies that do have targets, only 5% reach the minimum requirements for being credible, including, for example, covering greenhouse gas emissions related to a company's products. On the plus side, Net Zero Stock Take 2023, the third such report, does find a 25% increase in the number of net zero targets, primarily for private sector companies. Of the world's 2,000 biggest publicly listed companies, 929 now have pledges to reach net zero emissions, up from 702 in 2020 report. The problem, according to Net Zero Tracker, is a lack of joined up thinking at the national level bringing together plans for action that match a country's stated intent with the activities of the biggest polluters. Perhaps the newly revised OECD guidelines for responsible business conduct covering both environmental and social issues will help in wide-ranging reforms to guidelines not updated previously since 2011. The rebranded guidelines for multinational enterprises on responsible business conduct have boosted expectations on climate change and human rights impacts and on grievance mechanisms. The OECD has stressed the enforcement role of the National Contact Points, or NCPs, the network of government-backed organisations that adjudicate on breaches of the guidelines by companies. The NCP procedures have have attracted criticism for lacking teeth, for making decisions that favour companies and for being too closely controlled by government. The new guidelines require that each NCP undergo a peer review process by another NCP. Previously, such review was on a voluntary basis only. There is now a list of the criteria NCPs should follow for effective operation to try and ensure that complaints raised in different OECD member states are dealt with in an equivalent manner. NGO OECD Watch has broadly welcomed the guidelines update, but says that to be effective, NCPs still require greater ability to penalise companies that don't engage and stronger rules to ensure independence from host governments. The UK's House of Lords, Britain's albeit rather archaic appointed revising chamber, does have a history of sometimes pushing for progressive legislation. Not least in this week's vote to amend the Financial Services and Markets Bill, currently making its way through the UK's legislative process. The amendment, backed by opposition members and a number of influential crossbenchers who are politically neutral, requires UK financial institutions to carry out due diligence checks prior to funding so that no deforestation will result. Specifically, funders will have to make the checks before backing clients involved in high-risk sectors, such as agriculture. NGO Global Witness estimates that UK financiers invested $16.6 billion in businesses implicated in deforestation between 2015 and 2020, and has called on members of the House of Commons to back the Lords Amendment when the Financial Services and Markets Bill returns to the elected chamber before becoming law. 
Coming up now is an interview I had recently with Ricky Kylenstjernia, Senior Vice President Food Chains at Norway-based fertilizer company Yara International, following up some of the conversations about food sector resilience that we had at Innovation Forum's recent Future of Food events. We're going to talk a bit about resilient food supply. What are the key factors, do you think, in developing a resilient food supply sector? The real key factors in changing how we produce food is about cost sharing. We have to make sure that we share the cost of this emission reduction. In Yara, we believe that we need to create a market mechanism for carbon reduction because we need to enable this system to function in the way it operates the best, namely at sharing costs in a way that benefits the whole system. So that means that where the cost arises, namely at the farmer's field, then they also need to be compensated directly for that carbon reduction cost that they will have, a new cost for them at least. Why is it that the costs are with the farmer then? We can just look at the statistics of it. A quarter of the emissions on this planet at least comes from food production. And if you kind of drill down one step down, then you see that 80% of the emissions in the food system comes from the farmer's field. There's a lot to focus on packaging. There's a lot to focus on transport. And don't get me wrong, those are important as well. It's crucial. But they still do belong to the category that represents 20% of the problem. So to kind of address the real big issues, we have to get the farmers on board. To be very specific in relation to fertilizer, that means a new set of products, a new set of techniques, for instance, related to water and water usage and fertilizers, and also probably the most under-communicated area, namely the infield practices, that we need to enable farmers to know exactly the right amount of fertilizer to use. That goes for only fertilizers and inputs, there are so many other inputs that require costs for the farmer. And we cannot stand outside and give more instructions to a farmer or some would even say broken systems where the farmer is left in terms of the value they're creating. You mentioned the fact that we've got a situation where we have to be really concerned and by reducing emissions in agriculture. It's other factors too, it's other impacts on biodiversity, on water and everything else. So it's not just the carbon emissions that we need to be thinking about. But to solve any of these issues, it strikes me that you know, an all-value chain approach is really important, as you've said. How do you think we can develop this all-value chain approach? I think the key is to think holistically on it. The problem occurs at the farmer's field. But we are all faced with the consequences. And also, if you look at it from a consumer's point of view or even the financial market's point of view, you see these companies, let's say the food companies, they have pledges, they've they promised something to us as consumers. That can be fossil-free, net zero by 2030 and all that. And that's a, that's a promise that these companies give to us as consumers, but they also give that to their owners. So by saying that, they have a huge stake in the survival of the food companies the way they are, the way they operate today. So that is one part of the problem that we all own this problem in a new way. Thinking holistically on this, and that's what we are trying to do in Yara. How can we create market mechanisms to reduce carbon where we all chip in? Because I'm not sure if we can only share costs differently in the value chain that we actually can solve the big problems lying ahead. And that means that we need to have onboarded consumers into making sustainable choices, which is really scalable choices. But it's not just a matter of recycled packaging. Don't get me wrong, that's good. But we need to enable the consumers to know the good from the great. That's part of it. Has there been a disconnect then between 
growers and other value chain players? Has the model or the relationship not broken down, but perhaps moved in the way that it shouldn't? Well, I think it's absolutely is a disconnect. You can look at it from who's earning the big money. The closer to the consumer you are, the more money you make. Going back to if that's fair or not, it doesn't seem fair to us at least. But the thing is also that if we are putting even more costs on the farmer's shoulders and saying that now you need to negotiate upwards in the food value chain, then I think we will all be dead by natural causes while, <laughs> while waiting for that to happen because it's impossible for 500 million farmers plus to negotiate behalf. There's no internet address, is there, called farmer.com when you can reach them all. So I think we, companies like us, like Yara, we're kind of, we are present all around the globe in 160 countries. We need to use our voices and see kind of we have a solution to part of this problem. And we also think that we can create and enable these market mechanisms resolving parts of the carbon problem. As you say, 500 million farmers worldwide, a lot of people to reach. What are the sort of solutions that you think can help fix this disconnect between growers and other parts of the value chain? What we do believe in is that we create a carbon reduction collaboration, holistic ones. That basically means that we are tackling the big problems related to fertilizers. And we are obviously fully aware of the 1.4 billion tons of carbon emitted by fertilizers every year. But for us, we also see that that is also the size of the problem, but equals also the, the size of the opportunity. For us, investing in, for instance, blue and green fertilizer, which costs a tremendous amount of money and will be a huge investment. By us collaborating throughout the food value chain and also having a collaboration with food companies, we can chip in to make sure that that cost is split throughout. And one thing is the product. Ian, we talk about fertilizer a lot, but what's under-communicated, as I said in the beginning, is this precision farming. And I'm an advocate for using less fertilizers, believe it or not. We want our products to be misused. Rather the opposite. We are on a mission to make sure that we are using the right amount of fertilizer, the right product. And we have all of this fantastic research on that. That is up to us also in collaboration with those ordering the food from these growers in the first place to make sure that we tackle the infill part, which is equally important as the fertilizer itself. You mentioned just now blue and green fertilizers. Just explain a little bit about what each of those are. It's the amount of carbon being used. The actual product, it's about how they are produced. So the green fertilizers, for instance, they are not using natural gas as a resources, as a raw material. They are using water instead. That requires a tremendous amount of energy. That's why it's so much more expensive. But the actual product, the fertilizer that, you, that the farmers and the growers supply, that's the same product. It's using water, presumably hydrolysis of water to produce hydrogen, which is then used in the process of producing the fertilizers. I'm interested to talk a little bit about food supply business models evolving. You mentioned just now to look at who's earning the big money. How do you think that food supply business models need to evolve? We actually need to put a price on carbon. There is no other way because I don't think we will get a balanced market if we then have a lot of subsidies in one area that will create unbalance in how we compete in another sector. And that goes between countries, industries and so forth. That's our goal to make sure that that carbon has a value on its own. And by going one step down in that explanation, because I'm not merely talking about carbon credits. But those familiar with SPTI and how to measure that to reduce your footprint, a maximum amount of 10% come from offsetting 
buying credits, for instance. And what we are talking about in our business proposition throughout the value chain is actually in setting, changing the way we farm. The carbon that we save by, for instance, using this green fertilizer that I talked about just now, and also applying the right practices, precision farming, the carbon that we reduce needs to be priced. And that cost of that reduction needs to be shared. That goes from the food companies down to obviously also the farmer. As we advocate strongly for Anyara, we believe that the farmers needs to be compensated more than they do today. Clearly, a fertilizer business has a crucial role, as we alluded to, in helping farmers to minimize their impacts. And there's an obvious need to try and maintain and increase yields with less input. That's, we've been talking about that already. How are you going about enabling this? In Yara, we are the front runners in our industry and we're very proud of that. And I think we've been so for many, many years. It started off actually with our, us introducing a catalyst, which already reduced a substantial amount of emissions from uh, our fertilizer production. And that was 20 or so years ago. And what we did actually after inventing that, we sold that technology. So that's fully available to other companies as well. And we did that due to the fact that we need to reduce emissions on this planet. And then again, we are investing a lot in green production or green fertilizers. And we are also investing equally in practices and research. And we have, when I say equally, we have done so over 40 years or so, 40 plus years. So we have a lot of research and competence in terms of how much to apply in what crops, what areas, how the soil interacts with the crops and so on. So that means that competence by itself can reduce a lot of emissions. We also want to be the front runner in designing partnerships, holistic partnerships to reduce emissions. We are trying to be as bold as can be. We also receive very positive both feedback and conversations, even starting to have negotiations with different players throughout the value chain, because we all see the problem. It's not always easy to, to find the right solutions, but we also at least experience a lot of openness in terms of finding new holistic solutions together. Can you give us some examples perhaps of the on-the-farm solutions that you're talking about? So what we're doing then is that we're saying that we can separate the production of fertilizer, the value of the production of fertilizers from the actual product. As I explained to you earlier that the green fertilizer, for instance, that's the exact same product. And that means that the farmers, they can use the product they always used. But the value of that carbon, that is something we can split throughout the value chain with, for instance, food companies or retailers or other relevant players. That means that we can actually separate the financial value of the carbon and the product itself. That means there's more to trade. That's a way of trading carbon. You mentioned just now that producing green fertilizers require quite a lot of input energy. How does that work? Is it all hydrogen energy that you use to create the green carbon? And presumably to create the hydrogen, you require energy itself. So that depends on where we produce it. But at the moment, we are producing it in Norway while we start to this summer. It's actually, we have a fortunate position in Norway with our hydropower. So we actually have a green grid already. But obviously for us to convert our whole fertilizer production throughout the world and also the, our competitors. That's the key question, right? How do we make sure we have enough green energy? And I think for Europe, that's one of the key challenges, not just for the fertilizer industry, but for the whole industry in Europe is a huge question. There is not just one single answer, but that's obvious that if we cannot find a green electricity, then we are not going to get green fertilizers either. 
Well, it's an interesting model using the carbon-free energy and then using that as an incentive across the value chain. Really very interesting. How do you work with farmers specifically to help them use less fertilizer? So for us, enabling farmers to upskill them on fertilizer use is key. We have, for instance, tools like our at farm where you get the exact amount of fertilizers that you need to apply. One of the key elements to know how much fertilizer to apply is investing in your soil. The soil management and, and having a healthy soil is directly linked to the use of fertilizers. By doing soil analysis, for instance, and also obviously we have a huge overview of the different types of soils out there. And by knowing soil conditions, by knowing the weather conditions, obviously the crops, and then using the four R principles, we can actually guide our farmers either through agronomists on the ground or via digital tools as the app that I just mentioned. I think this goes back to the core and the heart of Yara because we don't want our farmers to overuse fertilizer. That is not the business model that we rely on. So for us, very, very often, it's about actually advising farmers to use less fertilizers and use it in the right way and also at the right time. So I think these, obviously, many, many farmers are fantastic experts, but still the research that we do and that we have done in our research center that also develops. So the more we know, the more we have of, for instance, this soil data analysis, the more accurate we can be in how we can onboard farmers into more sustainable farming and precision farming. Regenerative agriculture for us actually can be summed up in the nitrogen use efficiency. It in essence means that we are feeding the plant what the plant has eaten so that they can continue growing. Probably you will understand I'm an economist and not an agronomist, but it's actually as simple and as complicated as that. Provide back to the plant what it has eaten for breakfast, lunch or dinner. <laughs> you talked about earlier the need for collaboration. How can the value chain collaborate around this sort of model? And what are the incentives that are required across the value chain? One is the one we already discussed, namely having a price for carbon. That carbon price, the way I predict it now, is not likely to be one price for carbon insetting because it relates to the different costs. We need to onboard the financial market. That increasingly happens as well, that those companies with sizable efforts within the sustainability area that they can document, they will get better interest rates, for example. Then you have the consumers and companies like ours that can actually document the carbon reduction. I think we also need to both understand and collaborate with food companies or retailers selling food to be able to explain to these consumers incentives in, in that case is that you will actually sell more products. That's where I think we all need to be very holistic in our understanding and thinking. And a company like Yara, we were invented based on the famine in Europe in 1905. So we have been very, very low in the value chain when it comes to consumer-facing identity. We haven't really been close to the consumer, but we also need to rethink the way we act and interact throughout the food value chain. And how can we document, let's say, with track and trace of fertilizer that can enable food companies and retailers to communicate because they need our proof to do so. So I think that's an example of how companies like ours and other companies as well need to learn and understand how the entire value chain works. I also do believe it would be beneficial for us if the complexity in the value chain would go down. 
is surprisingly complex and there are a lot of players that we should dare to question a bit in the future, I think, to make sure we are the right players, but still that we are all impactful in the way we operate. Well, it's certainly a fascinating model and it's a really interesting idea to be using the pricing of carbon in such a way across the value chain. Interesting to hear how it develops, but for now, Ricky from Yara, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. And look out for next week's Monday Briefing, where I'll be previewing the last in the Innovation Forum Spring Event Series, the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference in New York City, next week on the 21st and 22nd of June. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.